Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Welcome, historians, to another exciting episode. This week, I am speaking to Gerald Posner. He is an author of 13 books, no less, has been described as a pitbull of an investigative reporter and really does get down to the nitty gritty on some very pressing and important topics. This particular book, uh, God's Bankers, you know, I'm a Catholic. I grew up in Ireland. My fellow historian, Neil, who is traveling in South Africa now, lost somewhere in the wilderness around Rourke's Drift, uh, so can't be here today. We're all kind of lapsed Catholics, and, and it was mainly to do with the institutional abuse of children by clergy and then by in, in industrial schools and things like that. But to be honest with you, I never really thought much else about how else they might be corrupt. You know, I always envisage them as being, a, you know, the church and the Vatican has been maybe a very big holder of real estate, but I didn't know anything about the, finan- the high finance and how they got into all that kind of stuff. So Gerald is going to take us through that journey. And it's one, Gerald, I think began, if I'm right, sometime around 1984 and on a completely different book, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, Derek, because I'm also a lapsed Catholic. Um, you know, I was raised with uh, in grammar school with the Sisters of Charity, those wonderful starched, you know, uniforms uh, that look like the flying nun. And then I went to a high school with Jesuits. Um, my mother was really devout. Uh, but I'm sort of a, a, what I call now a cultural Catholic in the sense that I understand Catholicism. Um, the, it's the formal religion that I sort of fell off of. But what I had forgotten about as a, as a youngster, and I think a lot of my friends did, who I grew up with in San Francisco, was we thought of it as a religion. And we forgot that it's also a sovereign state. It's a country with a flag that it can fly at the UN. It's unlike any other religion. So uh, on, on the one hand, uh, the, the very same men, and in this case, they're all men, because those are the ones who are cardinals and monsignors and that at the, at the Vatican, the ones who run the church, then cross over a few feet and they're in another office and they're suddenly the secretary of state for the Vatican or they're running, you know, these domestic affairs without any extra training. So we assume that they're both able to operate as vicars of Christ on earth and at the same time run it as a government. And you won't be surprised to find out that the same inefficiencies and bad things that sometimes happen to them in the religion happen times 10 when it gets to running it as a as a government in a bank. And you're right, for me, this was something I was interested in writing. I proposed it to publishers on and off. And for listeners of your podcast, they may be surprised or they may not be surprised. They might think that authors like me who have a series of books can go to a publisher and say, oh, this is what I want to work on. I'd like to uh, do a history of the, uh, the finances of the Vatican. And they say, of course, where do we send the check? And when can we publish your book? It should be so simple. Um, 
publishers often say, no, we're not interested in that. We don't think there's a market for that. Or we know some other author is working on something and they're taking it. It's a business in the end. They're often wrong. If they knew what was going to be a bestseller, that's all they would publish. That's all authors would, would pick, but they don't often know it. But still, I got turned down a number of times on the Vatican. And one of the things that I think makes it a successful author is you just don't understand the word no. Uh, you think it's just a means pause or come back. And so I kept coming back to them until I finally found a publisher that said, okay, go ahead and do it. And the great thing is, you know, one last wrinkle on this, I've been in an unusual position because I like to go to a publisher and say, I'd like to tackle this subject. And then I say, and I'd like you to give me an advance so I can pay my bills in the meantime. And I don't know what I'm going to find out or what my conclusions are because I haven't done the research yet. And now that's a big gamble. And that's where it helps having books in the background that you've done because they get some faith that you're going to be able to do a good job. But I don't know what I'm going to find until I go ahead and do it. I don't want to spend the five or six years it can take to do it and find out no one's interested. So, you know, there's this great process where there's a bit of faith on both sides. And I did find uh, Simon Schuster said, okay, see what you can find out in the Vatican. And, and off uh, I went with uh, Tricia, my wife, also an author, and we decided to see what we could find out. Well, I mean, that's the best way to start a, a starter book because really that's an unbiased recording of history. That's what history should be about. You shouldn't be having an angle because then you're just sharing your own very personal opinion, but it might not be based on the facts. It's very easy to do, fall into that trap writing about something like this though, isn't it? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, and I think that, and you'll get this, Derek, and I think a lot of your listeners might as well. When you, you say you go into a subject without a bias and you follow the evidence, let it go where it goes, it doesn't mean you don't have an opinion beforehand. People think you're saying you don't have an opinion. So if you were doing a book on the troubles, you'd have an opinion going in of what you thought had happened. Then the real hard part is sometimes allowing the evidence to take you to a conclusion different than what you thought because I think there's a bias confirmation that comes in. People like to think they're right before they've done their research. Then they go ahead and they do the research and they sort of cherry pick the items that confirm what they already believe. You know, anybody can do a book like that. The harder thing is sometimes to get to a spot where you're surprised yourself. You don't think necessarily would have been there. And that's the wonder of doing, you know, research. And what I love about this is it's not just interviews and it's not just, I. I like the fact, I'm very, very lucky, and Tricia says this all the time, that so many things in archives of different countries and in national institutions, isn't, they're not yet digitized. If it was all digitized, anybody could sit in front of their computer screen and do the research for any book. Sometimes you have to go to the location, you have to have the boxes pulled, you have to put on the gloves for the old documents so you don't ruin them. You have to go through file by file. You may find nothing for three or four days and you may find a golden nugget of information that takes you down a path that no one else has been. That's the wonder of historical research that I still love. And because it's difficult and time consuming, a lot of people don't like to do that. And so that's why there's still an area for historians who like to do that. That's where the excitement lies, isn't it? That's what keeps the blood pumping. And there's so much to talk about, historically speaking, as in going way back. Um, and the real exciting stuff, obviously, what happens in, in the 20th century. But maybe to take our listeners, give them an overview, because this really surprised me, actually, is that the, the church... Okay, I, I knew about the papal states. I, I knew obviously it was a sovereign, you know, you describe it as, a, as an empire, small, albeit that it, that it was. 
But towards the end of, uh, around the kind of Bismarck's era in the, in the late 1800s, the church was going bankrupt. Yeah, it, it's really fascinating because, you know, the church has this view, um, this biblical view the Pope's had for all these years that uh, Catholics should not sully themselves, worry themselves, dirty their reputations by uh, doing anything that uh, approached remotely capitalism. Don't loan money at interest. Uh, don't get involved in anything that would look like, you know, the equivalent of a bank or that. That was really the province of Jews. And then when Protestants came around, uh, heretical Protestants, they could take care of that. But good Catholics didn't do any of that. And the church, you're right, was this small little empire. It was about 20% of the size of Italy. The papal states spread from one coast to the other across the north. And they raised money the way that every other empire did by levying taxes and fees and collecting it. And it was enough to keep the church going, even though they had this grand papal palace. The papal the papal court was larger than the French court at its height, like 800 hangers on. Uh, you had princes of the court, you had people who were there. So it was, it had everything it needed. And then what happened, late 1800s, the papal states get wrapped up into a unified Italy and the Vatican loses its sovereignty. And it's like very few times in history where it's a light switch. If you look at uh, December 7, 1941, you look at the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, it was a light switch. It woke America up overnight, you know, into the war. This is a light switch in the sense that nobody in the Vatican is thinking about how they're raising money because they're collecting enough in fees and they lose the empire. And now they're really in trouble. So what they do is the Pope becomes a prisoner, quote unquote, in the Vatican, meaning that he sort of locks himself into Vatican City. They send out appeals around the world through all of their cardinals and emissaries saying the Pope is being held hostage in inside Vatican City. Not quite true. He was a prisoner of his own willing and send him money so you, he can take care of himself. And the people, you know, inundated the, uh, the church with uh, raising money for the Pope. In addition to what they had been doing for centuries, which is the selling of penances and uh, for indulgences, for, indulgences yeah. for you know get, uh, getting you out of purgatory a little bit faster, yeah. um, over time, yeah, as they needed more money, they became more aggressive. They put indulgences on steroids, so it was no longer just a matter that you could buy an indulgence for yourself. You could buy an indulgence for somebody who was a relative. You could buy indulgence as a gift card for somebody else. You could buy an indulgence for future sins that you hadn't yet committed. You could buy indulgences for those who had already died and weren't able to go ahead and get out of purgatory on their own. So indulgences brought in a lot of money. Now you're viewing a church that doesn't really know how it's gonna go forward. It still has sort of this ban on doing anything that would be raising money in terms of capitalism. And then comes along Mussolini. It's not until Mussolini comes in and becomes the fascist leader in the 1920s of Italy, and he hates the church. He, he called priests microbes, black microbes. He has no room for them at all, but he's also a realist and realizes that 97% of Italy at the time is Catholic, and he needs the support of the church to rally the Catholic base, and so he strikes a deal with them. Every good priest on every Sunday sermon goes ahead and praises the, the benefits of Mussolini in the new state in exchange for Mussolini signing a deal called the Lateran Pax, which gives the Vatican sovereignty. Now, it's only a postage stamp size piece of property at this time. Vatican City is really tiny, but what matters is it's considered a sovereign nation again. It has what it had under the, the Papal States, and that is really what creates what I call the modern Vatican financing process. It's not until uh, 
you know, World War II that comes about. And if I can just go back for one second for your listeners, there's a point at which the church has lost the papal states. They're having trouble getting money. And the popes, two different popes, have to go and borrow money from guess who? The Rothschilds. This is a humbling moment. The Rothschilds, Amon Rothschild and his five uh, sons walked out of the Frankfurt ghetto after the French Revolution in 1789 started to break the Jewish ghettos down. And they had been moneylenders inside Frankfurt because that was one of the few businesses they could do. They were really good at it. No Catholic financiers around. In one generation, they became the biggest merchant bank in all of Europe. So twice the popes had to go to the Jews, who they thought were just terrible for doing all this financing work and borrow money. And at one point, the Rothschilds, under pressure from other Jews in Europe, asked the popes, they said, by the way, besides paying us back, could you break down the wall around the Rome ghetto? It's the oldest ghetto in all of Europe. We think it's been there too long. The pope said, yes, they took part of the wall down. Once they paid the Rothschilds back, they put the wall back up. Um, and, yeah. and, and the pope and the church encouraged Catholic financiers to come in and form their own merchant banks, and they did. So uh, they became competitors, but very, very late in the game. What gets interesting now is we're really getting into the stuff that uh, I suppose people might relate to um, would be World War Two and well, just before World War Two. But what you what you were saying in your book and what you describe is that how closely linked actually the Catholic Church was to fascism. So obviously we, you've just discussed about Benito Mussolini and, and making them whole again as such. But also we're, we're talking about, you know, getting into bed essentially uh, with the with the Nazis. Yeah, it's quite interesting because the the person who becomes the Pope and serves as the Pope during World War II, uh, Pius XII, formerly Pacelli, uh, he was the nuncio to Germany before the war, before he became Pope. Uh, his closest aides were Germans. He spoke German fluently. He liked things Germany, viewed Germany as a very cultured country, which it is. It's given us, you know, Beethoven and great, uh, you know, philosophers. And I understand that. And, uh, and so that's how he, he viewed it. It was hard for him to imagine that the Nazis and the thugs who came to power were the same Germans that he knew when he had been there. But when he did become Pope, I think that one of the things that played into it was they, the, the church feared that if they came out and opposed the Germans and the Nazis directly, the Nazis would move against the Catholic Church inside of Germany. So that was one issue. In addition, they were far more afraid of Stalin and the Bolsheviks and the communists than they were of Hitler. Uh, it's true that the Nazis had really abandoned religion, but if you look at their background, they were all Lutheran or Catholic. That was their background. So the, the Pope felt some affinity. Maybe he could bring them back one day to their their Catholic roots or Lutheran roots, whereas he knew with Stalin there was no chance. Communism was the god, and the churches, whether it was synagogues or churches, um, had been destroyed across the board. So they had a greater fear. In addition, money comes in. So Hitler does an amazing thing. The church from the time of Bismarck had been collecting this tithe, as it was, 10% Catholics would give as a voluntary basis in Germany. I think if that had been the case in Ireland or the US, you'd have a far fewer Catholics. But for some reason, that worked in Germany, and it was on the honor system. You were supposed to send in 10% of what you had earned. Okay, it worked a little bit. Hitler said, I'll do a deal with you. Essentially, I will take it out of every Catholic's paycheck. If they're getting, if they're employed somewhere at a rubber factory or at a car manufacturer or anywhere else, the state will take that 
amount that comes to the Catholic Church directly out of the paycheck. You won't have to worry about it, and we'll send it to you. It turned out to be $100 million a year coming into the Vatican shortly after they did that. Now, that's fantastic. So why would the Nazis do that? And they recognized uh, it because they, they got something for that. The Vatican became the first sovereign country to recognize Hitler and the Third Reich as a the legal entity inside of uh, Germany and then others followed very quickly so it money was not the only reason that the church was easy going on uh, the Nazis in the beginning but it was certainly one of the big factors okay so I mean let's talk about the the Holocaust and the, the killing the mass killing of the Jews I know obviously the Catholics have, have always disliked the Jews you know that's that's been part of it peace and love it goes out the window uh, but you know really it was the priests on the ground in various countries certainly when the Einsatzgruppen were setting up their mobile gas chambers with trucks and and trying to fume people you know fume people to death they had you, you mentioned there's one character I can't remember as part of the Abwehr and he had a very nasty experience whilst trying to, to gas a number of, of Jews and, and came and told the, the papal nuncio, right, who, who was a Nazi member. Do I get that right? Yeah, the secretary to the papal, uh, to the nuncio was a, a member of the Nazi party and then it didn't give the report in initially to the nuncio. What had happened, you had somebody involved in the, in the early executions who had a guilty conscience and went and wanted to do a confession and then wanted to do more than confession, warn the nuncio so they could warn the pope. And, and it gets slowed up along the entire way because you're right. The the adjutant to the uh, the nuncio turns out to be a priest and but also a Nazi party member. Those things happened. The and the thing that I found which was remarkable to me that I didn't realize the extent of in going through the original documentation was what you mentioned a moment ago, and that was that. And of course, once you realize this, it makes perfect sense. The we have. This 1939 invasion by the the Germans into Poland, and then you have war breaking out, and as it as it does spread across the Eastern European countries, and eventually then becomes the war against Russia. Very little news is coming out. News is coming out, but you don't know if it's real or it's not. There's only one country in the world that kept. It's only one Western country that kept all of its what I call agents on the ground. And that was unwittingly the Vatican because priests stayed where they were. Polish priests didn't leave the little town that happened to be near Treblinka or wherever else, or where Jews were being rounded up near Warsaw because the war was going on. They stayed and they and they served the faithful. They also filed reports through the local bishops that were sent back to the Secretary of State's office, which was being run at the time by a Bishop Montini, later Pope Paul VI. And those reports were being taken in by the Vatican. The Vatican knew more about the killings long before Auschwitz was up and running as a killing center. They knew about the Einstein group and the local killings and the partisans and the moves against of homosexuals, the moves uh, that the Nazis had uh, against communists, against uh, partisans, against gypsies, all of those. And that material is filtering into the Vatican at an early stage. What does the Vatican do with it? Now, remember, this is the moral center of the religion. Do they send it on to some other country? No, uh, they don't know what to do with it. So they sort of sit there and they don't even have many discussions internally about what to do. They just view it as the, this is the, what's happening as a result of war. And uh, the Pope doesn't speak out about it because he's not sure it'll make any difference. 
So that's what I say. It's one of those things that I, I never considered, you know, as out, of, out of all the possible wrongs they, they did. You know, I always thought they were on the side of the, the good and they, you know, they were helping. And they did obviously do things during the war to, to help help people escape and things like that, though. You're right. And so, you know, I mentioned that in the book. So there are all these instances in which you have um, the uh, Catholics who went out of their way inside Italy sometimes to put themselves at great risk. But there was no more important Italian Catholic in all of Europe than the Pope. So the real question becomes, uh, what did the Pope do? One Italian Catholic might have had a real influence on what took place. We don't know. So, you know, I've often said, uh, the and there was this argument inside the church you, you know you mentioned before and i know this growing up catholic you know sort of jews are the people who killed christ in view of the old catholicism they were still doing at this point they hadn't yet had vatican ii so they hadn't taken out all the things you know they still talked about the, the perfidy of uh, jews there's anti-semitism inside sort of the catholic rituals there were some cardinals who in the internal documents argued that this was divine will this was God's will on the Jews, so you can't interfere in it. How's that for an unusual view, right, of, uh, of divine will? You know, you're, you're, you're stepping in front of what God wants to do for punishing him for 2,000 years ago, having killed Christ. That's a rather remarkable view. It wasn't the view of the Pope, but there was an element inside the Vatican arguing that. And I, and I think that one of the things that, that happens here is that in 1942, when you talk about finances and what happens, the Vatican has a fellow running its finances called Bernardino de Nogaro. They brought him in from the outside. They were smart enough to know we can't run this all on our own. And he was very clever. He was ahead of his time. And what he does is what you expect a capitalist financer to do when a war is going on. He invests in both sides because he's not sure who's going to win. Huh, Germans, the Axis power, or the allies, who do I invest in? He's not sure, so I'll put money in both. Now, the British and the americans had this so-called blacklist they were looking for neutral countries the vatican was technically neutral who were trading with the enemy so if they caught signs of you trading with the germans or the italians you were finished they put you on the blacklist you were sanctioned it's like being putin but uh, back in the day you and you can't do any business and and they did put on over a period of time all the neutral countries switzerland got blacklisted san marino Liechtenstein. Uh, uh, all the, the tiny little countries that said otherwise, Luxembourg, were neutral. The only one that didn't was the Vatican. And the reason for that was that in 1942, they formed a bank called the Vatican Bank. The only shareholder was the Pope. It answered to nobody else. It didn't have to make a profit. The only outlet, the only branch in the world was in this 16th century jail that was inside Vatican City. It didn't have any other branch. And it was run by Nagaro. It was the... An, cross Derek between like a Goldman Sachs uh, investment bank and a central bank of a country. And because the Vatican had it as its own bank, it was dark to every other country in terms of its transactions. So the Americans and the British and others trying to figure out what the Vatican was doing in terms of its finances couldn't figure it out because they had their own bank that wasn't part of the international system. So what Nagaro, the head of the bank did in the middle of the war, was he invested heavily, not only in real estate in London and other places, but he invested heavily in insurance companies, Allianz, the German company, and Generali, the Italian company. And those companies, the year after he invested that money, made outsized profits because they took the life insurance policies of Jews being sent to the death camps. They 
They took the cash value of those policies and put it into their profits and said, hey, these people are never coming back. And the profits were enormous. And then when the war was over, the Vatican said to the West, oh, by the way, you know, we were neutral and we never invested in the bad guys. We never invested in the Germans or Italians. And they got away with it. I mean, it it literally took 50 years for me to find the evidence that shows how much they invested in these reinsurance policies and how much money they made. Uh, But everybody took them at their word that they only invested in the winning side. Um, And they were able to hide it because the Vatican Bank was uh, had no transparency. And and you're on your own with investigating all that stuff. Obviously, they're not forthcoming with it. You had to dig deep. um, And I'm sure you came up against a lot of brick walls in the process. Uh, you know, the you know, one of the things for doing research like this is it's if you, if somebody reads the book like and you know this very well, it looks like a straight line. What I mean is you say, oh, that guy, he just started here and then he did research here and then he interviewed so and so and then he got these files and he ended up here. It should be so simple. The the you never get the files you really want. The files I really wanted are the, the Vatican's own files on the Vatican Bank in World War II. Those are still sealed. I wanted the Pope Pius's files, which they were still holding on to. I applied repeatedly and got bishops here in the United States to beseech the Vatican to let me in as a serious historian into the uh, the Vatican archives. And when they get those requests in Rome, they would just sort of laugh and say no. Uh, I wrote uh, opinion pieces in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post about the Pope urging him, asking him when it was Francis to release those files, they still haven't. So yes, then you have to go around. So you can't get the Vatican files on the bank. So how do you get the story? It means it's more work. You have to go to the insurance companies and look at their archives, because this had been the rumor. Go through those files to see their relationships to offshore companies that were now we know were owned by Vatican emissaries and Vatican in-between parties, and then put it together through the slow process of matching it all. So a perfect example. We were told, Trisha and me were told that the files for Allianz were bombed out in World War II. When the Allies bombed Berlin, they lost the, and Frankfurt, they lost the uh, the files for Allianz. It turns out that those files were actually in a warehouse in Trieste. They ended up in Italy, a big chunk of them. So, you know, never take no as an answer. You keep looking for everything. My big fear always in publishing is when I finally publish, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, a week from now, some historian is going to find a golden treasure of archive that I missed. And, you know, the story will change dramatically. But, you know, and one last thing, uh, by the way, you know, we talked before about how it makes sense that uh, the church had all this information on the killings, uh, the civilian killings in the East because of the fact they had priests who were passing back these reports. It also made total sense to me after I, I got into the research that it was impossible for the church not to have a close relationship, the symbiotic relationship, investments and everything else with the Italian fascists at war. Because 92, 93% of all the cardinals at the time were, were Italian. The church was dominated by Italians. And to become a cardinal in the 1920s, 30s or 40s, it, you were often from a very good Italian family, upper crust, um, elite, there would be three or four brothers in the family, one would be a general, one would be running a local bank, and then the mother would say, and my other son's a cardinal in the Vatican, there was this prestige to it. It was impossible to think that they went to war and just because they were on the other side of a wall inside of Rome that was called Vatican City, that they would lose their family loyalty and all of their 
sort of loyalty toward Italy and the brothers who were fighting for the war, how the Americans and British ever thought they really could be neutral in the Vatican, I'm not sure, because they were born and bred Italian. Italy was at war, the very future of the country was at stake, and there was a patriotism that came out of them. They're men in the end, they're not you know, immune to that. And, the, and their nationalism and patriotism made them want the Italians to win, despite the fact that they were saying, you know, we're just neutral. It, it was virtually impossible for them to be neutral. Yeah, they had, had a very good marketing strategy, I think, the church. They managed to convince quite a few people for quite a while. But obviously, uh, yeah, that ship has sailed now and went to something different. And when we come out slightly out of World War II, and, and this, this is, I think, maybe where your journey began on, on this story. It's a segue slightly and introduce our listeners maybe to your first work, which came out of pro bono work you did as a lawyer, trying to support the victims of Joseph Mengele and trying to track him down in Argentina and how you actually came across the stroke of luck when you started looking for files. The military junta had just been uh, pushed out after losing the Falklands War to Britain. Thinking of renovating or extending your home this year? Perhaps something a little smaller? New bathroom, new kitchen, help with soft furnishings? Well, look no further than Nine Yards Design Interior Design Studio. Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept, scaled drawings, lighting design, colour schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects from one room to a full redevelopment and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at nineyardsdesign.ie. Yeah, you, uh, you know, I, I know, Derek, what you just said is uh, anybody who does historical research of that, um, it would be great if uh, we could all claim that we're clever enough to know right where to go to get a new bit of history but sometimes there's a bit of luck involved and i certainly learned that early on uh, because when i arrived in argentina in november of 1984 to try to get information on mengala uh, there had been rumors he had been in argentina but nobody had been able to get the government to to uh, to cooperate and you're right the military junta was thrown out after the falklands war uh, the loss in that a new civilian government was in raul alfonsin they were in a spasm of democracy i went to the casa rosada the presidential palace has had many researchers before me asking for access to the so-called mengala files and during weeks in buenos aires one night uh, you know a member of the federal police uh, came by and picked me up I was a little nervous about that, but it turned out they took me down to headquarters to give me the file. Um, six weeks later, a British journalist asked to get into those files and they were denied access. So it turned out, looking backwards, that there was this spasm of democracy in which the government wasn't quite sure what to do. Six weeks after I had gotten the access, obviously the military police were able to exert their control and say, no, 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 we, we don't have freedom of information request down here, close the material up again. But sometimes you're fortunate for that. There's no question about that. And the and that does take you into what I call the, the that post-World War II period in which a part of the church, that part defeated, like Bishop Alois Udall, who was an Austrian and others, sort of helped Nazis get out of Europe. And the Americans knew that. The Americans were, you know, 
looking for their Nazi rocket scientists and others and giving freedom to Klaus Barbie, who was a butcher of Lyon because they wanted his list on uh, on the counterintelligence so they could fight the Soviets. Everyone was in the Cold War. So we were broking deals with Nazis as Americans. The Brits were. The Soviets were looking for them. And then we used the church sometimes to get them out of Europe. So when Barbie arrives in South America, he's greeted by two priests. They take him in. Uh, this was part of the process. It wasn't for money. It was really for ideology more than anything else. And so this post-war period, uh, even some of the gold reserves from the looted Croatian National Bank end up being taken to the Vatican. And why? Because the Vatican Bank has as part of its charter that it accepts physical deposits. So it's an unusual bank. You can show up with a, a briefcase of diamonds, or you can show up with a truckload of, uh, of gold, and they will take it and put it under an account for you. Um, and once it goes into the bank, it disappears. So it was a pretty good place to hide uh, some post-war looted gold and, and other material. Yeah, it's up there with the city of London for being able to say launder money. Eh? <laughs> that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And 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 the city of uh, London does it, uh, you know, with uh, without any embarrassment, and the Vatican did it without any embarrassment as well. Yeah, ab ab absolutely, and, and that's one of the things about like, most people don't even realize that the city of London doesn't refer to London City. It is this little uh, enigma uh, all out on its own with its own sovereignty. Another incredible uh, little piece of real estate. Great if you can get it type of thing. In incredible stuff. So, I mean, we're getting into the whole idea of using uh, the, the, the central bank idea and this dark pit for collecting money it had to lead to corruption there's no there's no other way I and mean, you, you know this, this is when the, the catholic church go, go off the scales and if, if, you know to bring it forward a little bit to the clerical abuse to think with all these cash reserves and deposits of gold and whatnot the the refusal to to pay compensation to to people who had suffered abuse is, is incredible you know when you when you put your story and if you were to attach it onto that, you know, it paints them in a really, really bad light. And I, like, I'm like you. I mean, I, I, I go to a little church across the, the, the road from me. I find it very peaceful. I can go to mass. I can find it very peaceful and I can take the message from it. It's very hard to look at the institution, you know, and, and, and when you yeah. get in and do that kind of investment work like you have, it makes it uh, very, very difficult indeed. And, and tell us, like, like to be honest with you now, I hope you don't mind me saying this and, and describing to uh, your listeners. If if I hadn't looked up what age you are on Wikipedia, <laughs> I, I I might I, I might say to listeners, I, I am a, a 47 year old with a, a big kind of flowing grey beard and a bald head. Um, and imagine somebody considerably older than me, uh, but looking the entire opposite to that. And that is Gerald Posner. How do you do it? Yeah, so you know, this is so t uh, wonderful. So I say you know, two things. One, uh, this is the great Italian roots of my uh, grandparents, the, the olive oil in your hair every day type of thing. But no, but seriously, you know, at times I say, Trisha and me have a fairly uh, boring life. We don't do recreational drugs. We don't um, hang out at the pub every night going through five pints or whatever. Uh, we do try to exercise. We don't smoke. We do try to take care of ourselves. We're not fans of recreational cannabis or whatever else. So, you know, uh, boredom pays off after a while or that we're stuck in archives. The worst thing we get are dust mites from uh, documents. <laughs> so we both have allergies. We start sneezing at a certain point and the, and the archivists say, oh no, oh no, they're, they're sneezing. The, uh, but the, you know, there's, there's something, Derek, what you just said a moment ago, too, uh, back to the church when it's this, we know that they're immortal, that they're able, they're, they're like everybody else. And if you put 
a group of men and women around billions of dollars with no oversight or regulation, some of them are going to do the wrong thing, maybe quite a few of them. And that's what happens with the Vatican Bank. So, you know, in the, in, the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the Italians who are trying to hide cash or the mafia who's trying to hide cash, they realize, oh my God, in the center of Rome is this spot called Vatican City. And if I'm standing on one side of the street, I'm in Italy with a whole bunch of illegal cash. If I cross the street, I'm in a new jurisdiction and I can give that to a priest who opens up an account in my name and that money disappears. I don't pay taxes on it. Illegal money can go there. So it became this repository for bad characters for a 20 and 30 year period. And then in comes Pope, you know, John Paul II, the Polish Pope, and he decides to use the money that's sort of there to fight communism. He funds solidarity and everything else. So, you know, they all have their thing, but they've got this slush fund that's available. We later find out that, uh, you know, Andriotti, who was what four times prime minister, he's now dead of Italy and held so many different cabinet positions, had a slush fund inside the Vatican Bank from which he paid for jewelry from his wife's Florentine jeweler to, to slush funds for politicians. So the bank became a hideout for a lot of bad characters. And one of the things that happens is now you have all this money being misused and you have the pedophilia, the sex crisis that's going from country to country. And I have a chapter called a criminal underground in the priesthood. It's a quote that somebody gives about what was happening. And I look at it just from the dollar and cents perspective, right? The, uh, what was the church doing? So in the beginning, when the stories are coming out in the US, in the press, Vatican says, oh, that's a particularly American phenomenon. You know, they're so repressed about sexuality over there. That must only be happening in a, with a few parishes in America, nowhere else. Well, we certainly know that's not the case, you know, and from Ireland to France to Germany to Italy, uh, it was an international problem, but it was that it was breaking first in, in, in some ways in the press there. And then once it started to break widely, it's so remarkable, it shouldn't be, I get this, it's just disappointing maybe I should say, uh, that, that the reaction inside the Vatican is, oh my God, it's only a matter of time until some clever solicitor, barrister, or lawyer, especially a lawyer in America, is gonna figure out how to sue the Pope. They're gonna sue the Vatican. We've got to make sure that all the Vatican in every parish in every country is its own distinct legal entity, that if one goes down because they go bankrupt, they've had to pay out too much in terms of, they get us found by a jury for all this abuse and hiding it, then we have to make sure that it doesn't take down a neighboring uh, parish that has a lot of money. And you see them paying in the US, they paid a billion dollars on through 2015 on legal defenses and what I call bankruptcy machinations. They paid $2 billion on settlements. And it is such a sorry story because uh, the, the hiding of the money, the protection of the money is just to me, adds an insult to the grievous injury of what was the worst of all the crises. Yeah, God, they, certainly, they certainly weren't making that money from the donation baskets on Sunday mass anyway. That's, that's, that's for sure. Oh, my, my God. I think it'd be good to take a, just a very brief moment, Gerald, to, I suppose, compliment the partnership, what an incredible partnership you've got with your wife. I mean, you, you are this investigative team. Um, and I suppose I'll, I'll hand it over to you for a second just to, to pay, pay some compliments to your, your researcher, your, your backbone. Yeah, you know, um, I, we're very, very lucky. We met in 1980. We got married in 84 and uh, we uh, worked together. 
we uh, spend all our time together. We actually like each other on top of loving each other. So it's good. And we, and we debate things all the time. You know, what about this? What about that? We're not always in agreement. That's what makes it so great. We look through the same documents and material and I'll say, Tricia, I think this means this. Um, and she'll say, no, I think you're giving too much emphasis to that because what about that? You need somebody to sort of be the counterweight because otherwise you just get lost in the material. So if I move over here to one side, you'll see behind me, the pharmacists of Auschwitz, that was her last book in 2017 and a sidelight for those listening to this podcast on the historians. That was a book. So here's a case. That's a biography of a fellow called Victor Capesius, which most people will say Victor who he turns out to be the chief pharmacist uh, at, at Auschwitz after being drafted into the Waffen SS. He's a Romanian and ethnic German. He's sort of the classic story of an ordinary man who's able then to devolve into doing this evil and the story of two men who sort of try to bring him to some semblance of justice after the war. Trish had wanted to do that book for years. She, We had met Rolf Mengele, the only son of Joseph Mengele, the angel of death back in 1985, when I was doing my Mengele biography. And Mengele had told us, Trisha and me had met him and he told us how his father got away after the war. And at one point he had had gone to get safe haven with these two pharmacists who knew what had happened at Auschwitz because they knew Victor Capesius, the pharmacist of Auschwitz. When we left that meeting, Trisha said to me, Auschwitz had a pharmacy? Like, what for? Because they're killing people. And if you would then forget that there are 7,000 SS people working there, and they're the ones being treated. Uh, they don't want the diphtheria and the typhus and things like that that are affecting the camp uh, uh, prisoners to spread over to the SS. So they're the ones who are really getting it, and he's running the Zyklon B. So Trisha wanted to do this book for decades. And every once in a while, in between a book that I was doing, she'd have an idea and she'd do some more work on it. When she went to publishers, they all said, no, we're not interested. No one was interested. One New York editor who shall remain unnamed uh, said the Holocaust isn't um, isn't trending. So that's an interesting way of saying it. All right. Um, and uh, she ended up finding a very small British uh, publisher of Crux Publishing. And uh, he said, you know, I'll put it out. No advance. Um, I don't have any money to do that. But let's see. That book's been translated now into 16 or 17 languages a year after its publication with no publicity, word of mouth, put it on the bestseller list. So, you know, things, good things can happen to people who write history, but you just have to believe that the history is different enough or told well enough that uh, you're going to find readers. Patience and stickability and never give up. That's what I guess uh, from everything you've, you've said today now. It's a, a testament to you both. So with, with that said, I suppose you've, you've probably some projects uh, on the go at the moment, have you? She has a great project that um, I really like it. It's about a Swiss financier who after World War II sort of, you know, was the banker for a lot of stolen loot from the Nazis and then later financed a lot of early Arab terrorism and then paid for the defense of Klaus Barbie at his trial and and Carlos the Jackal. He's a, like a, he's a Zelig type of character, but with a dark side. Um, and so I think that will be a good book and nobody has really written about that. And I'm looking at a couple of projects that I need to find out from my publisher if they will stand behind it and if they will, and then I know that the next three, four years is some deep dive into some corner of the world that I've never been. One of the things I like to do, by the way, Derek, and you'll find this, you've interviewed other people and I see it on your, your podcast. They stay in the same lane. What I mean by that, some people do World War II, stay in World War II. 
Some people talk about intelligence material, stay in the world of intelligence of that. Um, I like to go to a field like the, the Vatican finances or go to something like my last book on the pharmaceutical industry or something on Mengele about which I know nothing at all and then start from scratch. And so just at the point where I'm conversant and feel confident that I know enough to keep writing about it, I want to go on and learn something about a new world that I know nothing about. And there are a lot of those. So that's always the challenge. Yeah, that, that's what keeps it interesting, though. You're certainly a man after my own heart with, uh, with, with all of that. Historians, this has been a fantastic interview with Gerald Posner. Please pick up one of his 13 books and certainly uh, give his good lady wife, uh, Patricia Posner's book, The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, a whirl. Uh, plenty to get stuck into there and plenty of stimulating stuff for a bored mind um, on, a, on, a, on a wet day. We, we've had terrible weather here in Ireland. I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I just moved into a new house. And we are a house which is an island in a lake of mud. That's it. So step out the door and we've just feels of mud. Uh, but hopefully we'll dry out in the next couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Hopefully we uh, can get a chance to do another interview with you on your next project. I shall certainly keep an eye out for anything that you have coming up next. Yeah, thank you, Derek. Thank you very much. It uh, really uh, it was a treat to get the chance to uh, talk with you. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here